I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 16 going on 17 um, on a family trip and ended up in the hospital about three weeks after some pretty severe symptoms and some uh, some pretty serious dehydration. I was in something called diabetic ketoacidosis and my blood sugar was 596 milligrams per deciliter. So for your audience, normal is anywhere between 70 and 120 and very rarely do most people who are metabolically healthy ever go above 180, even with you know very, very uh, high carbohydrate intake. So I was well above that and uh, was in the hospital for two weeks. And from that point forward, I was, I, I, I found out in that moment that I was now gonna be manually controlling my blood sugar for the rest of my life. And using insulin, lifestyle and nutrition, exercise, uh, all the tools that are available to us. Um, and it's been an amazing learning experience. Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Andrew Kutnick. Andrew Kutnick is a father, husband, type 1 diabetic, researcher, and patient advocate investigating the influence of nutrition and metabolism on health, disease, and performance. Andrew was awarded a presidential fellowship at the University of South Florida, Morasani College of Medicine, where he investigated the therapeutic role of low-carbohydrate diets and ketosis across neurologic, metabolic, and mental health and disease. More importantly, Andrew has lived with type 1 diabetes for over 16 years, working diligently to advance the investigation and translation of evidence-based solutions, i.e. nutrition, to improve type 1 diabetic patient outcomes via organizing and participating in patient communities developing educational resources, initiating institutional collaborations, and bringing social awareness. Andrew lives in Santa Barbara, California with his two energetic boys, Stellan and Miles, his brilliant and beautiful wife, Kelly Hope Kutnick, and his cat, Professor Peaches. In this episode, Andrew teaches us about blood sugar's powerful impact and specific ways you can better control your blood sugars to optimize your health and feel your best. With pre-diabetes on the rise at an alarming rate and most people going undiagnosed, this is a conversation you don't want to miss. Andrew, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on. I mean, we were just saying like we would just keep chatting if I didn't start hitting record. Um, And I am such a blood sugar junkie, which I was telling you, and I think it is such a core component of our health. So I'm so excited for this conversation. It is my first conversation back from maternity leave and it couldn't be a better fit. So welcome. Uh, well, I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here and uh, I give you complete honor, your champion for being a mom uh, and doing this as well. So uh, good for you. <laughs> so I'd love, Andrew, if you could start off with just telling our listeners a little bit more about your journey and okay. You know, your journey with, like we were just saying, blood sugar kind of controlling your life or learning how to, and then your passion for helping others and why you think blood sugar control is so important for people to be aware of and at the forefront of their health. I I, I appreciate that question. It's it's definitely something that has ebbed into my life um, by by force, really. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 16, going on 17 um, on a family trip, and ended up in the hospital about 
three weeks after some pretty severe symptoms and some math, uh, some pretty serious dehydration. I was in something called diabetic ketoacidosis, and my blood sugar was 596 milligrams per deciliter. So for your audience, normal is anywhere between 70 and 120, and very rarely do most people who are metabolically healthy ever go above 180, even with you know very, very uh, high carbohydrate intake. So I was well above that and uh, was in the hospital for two weeks. And from that point forward, I was I, I, I found out in that moment that I was now going to be manually controlling my blood sugar for the rest of my life and using insulin, lifestyle and nutrition, exercise, uh, all the tools that are available to us. Um, and it's been an amazing learning experience to see how impactful glucose control can be, not only to how we feel every day, uh, but actually of every single meal um, day in and day out. So it's been a journey and it's now what I do full time. It is what I research. It's what I love. It's what I advocate for. Um, and I do believe that, uh, getting as close to normal glucose control is very, very important for overall health. Um, and it is ultimately something that I, I think, uh, translates beyond type one diabetes. And can you explain for our listeners, Andrew, just the, like a, a quick difference of type one versus type two diabetes? Sure. So, uh, for someone who doesn't have diabetes, their body eats, let's say, you know, if you go to the store and you buy some rice or some potatoes and you go home and cook them and eat them, you know, you eat that food, your body will have, uh, will break it down into individual glucose molecules and it will go up in the bloodstream, but your body's would very, uh, which would take those glucose molecules and put them into muscle uh, and a uh, liver and other tissues for energy and storage. So your body keeps blood sugar control under very, very tight control. Under type 2 diabetes, which more people are probably familiar with, uh, it is a disease that is, involves insulin resistance. So where someone who doesn't have diabetes would, in theory, have normal ability to release insulin and then take glucose and put it into cells. But in type 2 diabetes, that insulin doesn't have the same impact and ability to open up channels for glucose to get into the cells. It's something called insulin resistance. Um, and it's a uh, complex and multifactorial disease. So not everyone has progression in the same way. So it's a little complex, but uh, the simple way to describe it is insulin resistance. So the molecule that controls glucose is not working well. And in the context of type 1 diabetes, which is a disease I live with every day, the pancreas no longer actually produces insulin. So you're insulin deficient. So the key difference between type 2 and type 1 is insulin resistance in type 2 and then insulin deficient in type 1. Yeah. And just so for everyone listening to, even if, you know, we were saying for someone who doesn't have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, even if they're eating like, you know, those potatoes and rice we we're talking about, your body is under more control of your glucose levels, right? And it can handle without taking insulin. But we can still have blood sugar spikes, right? Which I'm sure, yep. you know, we're going to get into of like what that can lead to as well. Yeah. Um, yep. But how, what have you found, you know, in your own experience, Andrew, but then also working with so many people, how important is blood sugar control for your health in general? Obviously, right, for you, it's very important because, you know, you have to take insulin every day. But for someone who has maybe either type two or is, you know, maybe they're on kind of that blood sugar roller coaster of having spikes and having drops, how important right. is it for us just in general to keep our blood sugar levels 
more steady. I like to think of it almost as like, you know, a lot of people whose blood sugar maybe isn't as steady. It's like big ocean waves where it's like, no, we just want like some small baby waves. So how can we keep those small baby waves going? Yeah. So to to answer your first question, the the reason we know how important glucose control can be for overall health is actually from type 1 diabetes and also type 2. That these diseases are actually diagnosed based on elevated glucose control. So glucose in and of itself is the reason for diagnosis. They diagnose it based on um, either mean glucose or actually something called HbA1c, which is a biomarker that averages glucose exposure over a two to three month window. Uh, so if it's higher, there is more glucose in the system. And if it's lower, there's less glucose in the system. Uh, and so those are the tools that are used to define this disease. And so glucose defines this disease by definition. Uh, but in type 1 diabetes, we know that as blood sugars get higher and higher, let's say above 120, you're technically medically in hyperglycemia. And as you go higher and higher and higher, there's this uh, dose response in acute symptoms of hyperglycemia. So it, your audience can actually go on Google and type in hyperglycemia and symptoms. And you see a list of symptoms, including fatigue, irritability, um, and, and a whole host of other issues that accompany elevated glucose control. So this is uh, no secret that this is a problem, um, but it's most commonly observed in my disease because blood sugar fluctuations are uh, and honestly a very common part of this disease for most patients. But the opposite end of the spectrum is low glucose. So let's say in my disease where someone might over-administer insulin or in the context of uh, individuals, like it was once discovered that marathoners about 100, year ago, 100 years ago, when they run very long marathons, part of the reason they bonk is because their glucose levels become lower and lower into true medical hypoglycemia. And you can become irritable. You can have uh, slurred speech. You're basically, your brain is being deprived of important nutrients in the context of glucose. And, and it's, not, it's not just glucose that can fuel the brain. There's things like ketones and lactate that are important substrates for, for brain energy metabolism. But glucose in most people under a standard diet is critical. And But long-term, the consequences are, are much more appreciated uh, in the medical literature. So living with elevated and variable glucose um, increases the risk for all-cause mortality, ultimately leading causes of death. For someone with type 1 diabetes, the average HbA1c is around 8%, which translates to an estimated mean glucose of 180, so almost double normal. And people with my disease who are living with these average outcomes um, are subject to uh, a host that most people focus on beyond just, you know, uh, kidney disease or, or eye damage or a nerve damage from elevated glucose, these uh, microvascular disease, nerve damage, these very sensitive tissues in the body uh, that are very sensitive to these elevated glucose and, and the blood. Uh, but we know at the end of the day that glucose control from diseases like diabetes uh, can reduce survival. Um, and I, what I mean by survival, it shortens the lifespan of patients uh, with my disease anywhere between 11 to 47 years on average. So, and uh, elevated glucose is one of the primary, if not the predominant factor leading to that. And that 11 to 47 years um, is based on country. So there's a study in 2020 by uh, a group in Lancet by Gregory et al. Uh, that showed that high-income countries can, the average shortened lifespan is about 11 years. Uh, and then for those in very, very low-income countries, it could be the average lost life is about 47 years. So the one problem related to this is obviously glycemic mismanagement. 
uh, and, and maybe more appropriately placed because not always someone who can't manage it, but just the average outcomes in type one related to variable glucose. But even outside of type one, we know that people, um, as they get higher and higher glucose levels, puts them at risk for developing type two diabetes who don't have mm-hmm. the diagnosis of type one. And that's pre-diabetes. So um, an average fasting glucose above 100, anywhere between 100 and 125, um, is in, a signs that individuals are having elevated and variable glucose or signs of insulin resistance. And they're also at increased risk in pre-diabetes. So even these subtle elevations in glucose above normal um, over a chronic period of time, so sustained elevated glucose levels, put people at risk for uh, cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. Uh, and there's been some meta-analysis, so studies that look at a host of other studies, so kind of summary uh, analyses of other studies, show this. So uh, we know that there is very rigorous evidence in diabetes and also pre-diabetes. But we also know that a lot of work in what they call basic science, so where you actually are in a laboratory on a benchtop looking at individual cells and tissues or model systems, you can look at the direct impact of glucose on various tissue systems. And we know there's a number of mechanisms by which glucose directly cause damage, at least if they're elevated above normal, to various tissues. And oxidative stress is a key one. But there's others like inflammation, advanced glycation mm-hmm. agents, or AEG, or AGE. A- a- um, it causes epigenetic changes. It shifts the water fluid from outside the cell and inside the cell, which can cause sheer stress and vasculature and in brain. Um, so there's a host of reasons why people, even in the context of diabetes, want to maintain normal glucose control. But for those outside of diabetes, it's more of a concern of what's my risk for developing abnormal, elevated, mm-hmm. and variable glucose? Uh, and, and should I be concerned or should I do something about it? And that is an interesting conversation. Totally. And then the numbers are so much higher now for people living with pre-diabetes. And then they're in that phase kind of of like, you know, which way are you going to go, right? And we're going to talk about the different lifestyle changes you can make. Um, but I want to take note, too, of, first off, everyone, when we're talking about glucose, you know, we've done a couple episodes on blood sugar specifically. But for anyone a little bit new to it, when we're talking about elevated glucose, it's anytime you're taking in any type of carbohydrate. So like, right, we said earlier, potatoes, rice, pasta, those are all the things we think about first. But also fruits, um, certain starchy vegetables, um, beans, lentils, all these things can have different impacts on your blood sugar, some more so than others. But that's at least when we're talking about elevated glucose. And I wanted to point out too, Andrew, that it's like, you know, even if someone's listening and they're like, oh, well, I don't have, I don't have prediabetes. I don't think I'm on my way there. One thing I find that everyone has experienced is that blood sugar roller coaster of, you know, you're eating some carbohydrates, you're feeling really good. And, you know, let's say whether, you know, you weren't pairing those carbohydrates with, you know, some proteins or fats or things like that, and you're spiking your blood sugars up high, the only place it has to go is to drop down low. And when we are talking about that hypoglycemic state, you know, um, maybe not as severe as like a medical hypoglycemia, but you're in that dip, that's when you can start to feel hangry, irritable, like, you know, we feel all these things. So I also try to tell people, it's like, it's also just about feeling good throughout the day because I identify with so many 
people and they're like, oh, I just feel like every day it's like, you know, I have my meal and then only like two hours later I'm hangry and I'm not feeling good. And then I eat more and then I feel fine. But then it like the cycle just keeps happening over and over again. And what people don't realize is that is elevated blood sugars. Then they have a crash. And then, and when we're having like kind of like I was saying, those those bigger waves up and down, that's what can lead to a pre-diabetic state. Um, and obviously, potentially, ultimately, more so would be type two in that scenario. But it's just about like I always say it on the on our show, but it's about like, right, we want longevity and we want to feel good. Like we want to be feeling good while we're there. Yeah. So what have you found, you know, for yourself, but then also in the research, what are some lifestyle factors, you know, whether it's nutrition, fitness, um, even, you know, uh, stress management that we can right. do to help keep those blood sugar spikes at bay at least. And 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 I want to address that by also talking a little bit about what you brought up. So when we talk about carbohydrate intake, it is one of the, if not the most potent impact on postprandial glucose elevation. So food is, uh, especially in type one, but even outside of type one is one of the biggest factors in at least post-food uh, glucose control. Um, but some people are, let's say, young and healthy and, uh, you know, uh, great metabolic health. They may be able to eat carbohydrates and just have a normal response and there's no issue whatsoever. Um, but here, I want to touch on something here, this, this idea of undiagnosed prediabetes. Because we actually studied a group of uh, yeah. competitive athletes who were uh, running up to fifth kilometers every week. They were uh, less than 16% body fat, so super fit, lean. Uh, they were also had VO2 maxes for their age group that would put them in ex excellent, exceptional health, top 90 to 90%, maybe 95% for their age group. So very, very competitive runners. And what we found is that when we actually monitored these folks for up to 31 days on a high carb diet and a low carb diet, while these athletes were on a high carb diet, you know, up to 60% uh, by KCAL percentage of total caloric intake was 60% carbohydrates, which is about uh, 350 grams per day. So they were staying totally neutral in their body weight, no changes in body weight, no changes in training status. 30% of them had prediabetes. They didn't even know it. And that led me down a journey to look at how ubiquitous is this? in athletes um, who are supposedly the most immune, so fit, normal body weight athletes. And we actually uh, looked at this from a systemic perspective. And uh, uh, the data is not out yet, and, uh, and maybe there'll be an opportunity to share a little bit more about this, but suffice it to say, there is a percentage of athletes who are completely lean, normal body weight, uh, who are exercising a lot, uh, who actually are developing prediabetes and don't know it. When actually looking at the stats on prediabetes for those who don't even know so 41% of the population between tw uh, 2011 and 2014, so a decade ago, 41% of everyone between 12 years of age to uh, max age lifespan, 41% uh, had dysglycemia. So prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. If you looked at the incidence, so that was a decade ago. So we know that the trend for people being overweight and obese is upwards of 85%. Now, these, these trends are going in the wrong direction and keep rising right? Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. Weight's a big one. The food environment is a, a huge issue as well. Uh, but when actually looking at the incidence of people who had diabetes, so full-fledged type 2 diabetes and didn't even know it, the stats from the CDC or NHANES data says it's anywhere between a fourth to a third 
If you look at prediabetes, so people who are starting to develop signs of dysfunctional glucose control, up to 80% of people who have prediabetes do not know it. And that is alarming, right? Uh, This is a very concerning issue because we know the risk associated with this and the trends aren't getting better, right? And and so uh, it illustrates that this is a problem that we need to resolve. And there's a number of ways in which someone can attempt to do that. And food is one of them. Um, and we can we'll talk about that, but some of the things you talk about as tools that someone could implement to maybe try to improve glucose control. Well, I think someone has to sit back and look at the total, uh, their total lifestyle, their overall health. This includes things like not just food. Food's obviously critical. Um, it, it, it's the one thing in, in the environment that you ingest and elevates glucose. So obviously it matters here. It's, it's clearly very relevant. But exercise matters too. We know that anyone, uh, anything is better than being sedentary, right? And sitting on the couch. So getting up and moving at all is better than not doing it. And there's really a dose response. So the more you exercise, it appears to be better and better for your overall health. And that's, so that's, that's nutrition and food, but there's also things like sleep. You know, we know that poor sleep, which a lot of people experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when I was at your, your mom, I'm a parent. So it's like default training, uh, to be sleep deprived as a parent. So, uh, I can tell you that, um, sleep does matter. You know, they recommend, you know, north of seven hours for sleep, ideally eight for most people. And there doesn't seem to be many people who can, some people can function what they feel is fine unless, but truly there's very little evidence to say that that's actually healthy. There's more evidence to say that lack of sleep in general around these numbers is, is leads to poor adverse health. Uh, and there's also things like stress, you know, stress is, one of these um, invisible comorbidities, so to speak, uh, with life, uh, you know, things like glucose control, it can in fact, in fact, affect glucose control over time. But those are the those are the things that people should focus on first. Uh, is thinking about, I agree. It, you know, so good nutrition control, exercise, sleep, reducing your stress. Um, th- if you if you don't get those things right uh, off the bat, um, then you're, you're kind of looking for, you know, little tricks and uh, nicks and knacks. You're, those are the things that really matter. If you can get those things right, you can fix a lot of problems. I, I will want to add to that though, is normal body weight, not having normal body weight or having excess adipose tissue will lead to most or putting uh, elevating risk for most of these issues related to dysglycemia and honestly, poor health in general. Yeah. So I would add that as a fifth pillar to uh, not just BMI, not just body weight, but excess adipose tissue because we know muscle mass can skew sometimes BMI metrics and other biomarkers. But uh, those are the core principles. Uh, and if people can follow those, they're getting closer and closer to overall health and wellness. Um, it's like having the chassis, the wheels, the engine on a car, um, and, you know, not worrying about what color the rims are, what color the car is. These are extras, but we want to focus on the, the engine, the chassis, uh, the wheels, you know, the things that actually drive this car and, and make it function. No, that's so well said. And is there anything, Andrew, you would recommend to people? If if someone's listening, they're like, well, I don't know. Like, how do I know if I may be one of those people that has prediabetes? So one, you you know, when you go to your doctor and you get your blood work done, make sure they're checking your hemoglobin A1C. But is there anything else you think people should be doing or symptom-wise should take note of that may make them want to get in and get blood work done to check? Sure. So I I think so as you know, there's three, HbA1c is important. That's the, the yeah. biomarker that looks at glucose control average over a two to three month period of time. There's also fasting glucose. So you can actually look at plasma fasting glucose, and that's another way of diagnosing 
if you might have dysglycemia. But those are not perfect biomarkers. We know that HbA1c only tracks uh, for about 80, it can only explain about 80% of glucose control. So there's a percentage of people who don't have normal HbA1Cs and they might have normal glucose. So it's not a perfect biomarker. It's one of the, one of the most important, but it doesn't work best for everyone. Fasting plasma glucose, as mentioned, is another one, but it's not perfect. It only looks at basal glucose exposure, which is an indices of maybe some signs of insulin resistance. Uh, even at rest, not even post ingestion of food or carbohydrates. But there's also oral glucose tolerance tests, which is really a dynamic interaction between glucose and insulin. And that's, you know, often used in pregnancy, uh, to see if someone may be at risk for gestational diabetes, um, which looks at whether you're, you take 75 grams of basically straight sugar, uh, in a rested position and you track to see if you can get below 140 milligrams per deciliter two hours later. Uh, and so. Those are the tried and true tests, but a lot of what we were seeing is that people went, we're not testing positive on biomarkers like that, but you know, they wear one of these CGM monitors, which tracks every minute of every day, giving you, you know, within a day, like 70 to 288 times the resolution on glucose dynamics. And over a month or two, you're getting 5,000 to 17,000 times more resolution on what's happening in your glucose control. You know, living with diabetes, we have these tools because we have to, it's, it's, it's critical to our overall well-being. Uh, and be able to track glucose control because it could be fatal, you know, uh, from having too low glucose in the moment or excessively high can cause damage pretty quickly over time. So uh, those are tools that people can look at and, and use. But to your point about what can someone do if they don't have those tools? You know, you might get blood work every yeah three every months, year? six months, yeah, even if you're for a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, if, if, if even that. So what do you do? Well, I guess you can you can just do a self assessment on how you feel. You know, do I feel like I have uh, good energy? Do I feel like um, when I eat this food, do I feel tired, sluggish, lethargic? That's a good litmus to think, hmm, what am I eating? You know, is this, is, is this healthy food? Is this, is this food that I would deem to be ideal for me? How long do I feel sluggish? When do I feel sluggish? And, and start to kind of self-assess because if you're feeling tired on a regular basis, you know, fatigue is something that's associated with um, dysglycemia as well. Uh, I, I certainly feel it myself. We talked about this earlier in the podcast about when blood sugars go up and come down. I can tell you, I very distinct. I can feel that. I because of having oh. a a CGM. I don't know if I can pull this up here or if you guys can see it, but these ups and downs that are associated with glucose control. It's kind of a little blurry here, uh, but those lines, um, they they you when you start tracking it. When I'm using a CGM uh, because of my diabetes. You can start to associate what's happening with your glucose with how you feel. And it's an amazing learning tool. Not everyone has access to them. But in the absence of a tool like that, you can do some self-assessments of when you feel maybe not ideal or when you feel sluggish, when you feel tired. Uh, and if you feel that way on a regular basis, maybe it's time to at least get some assessment, a baseline assessment of where you are from some blood biomarkers. And um, at the end of the day, you don't want to feel that way, right? So even if your blood work says, well, you're the pristine health, but you feel terrible all the time. You need to start thinking about doing something different. Uh, because uh, I can tell you, even if you look, you know, grade A on blood work, but you don't feel great, most people care about how they feel every single day. And that's an important metric. So there are things that matter beyond just these objective biomarkers you get in the clinic. It is also very important to think about how you feel. And as you, as you know, as a parent, and I'm a parent and I have a, a spouse and, you know, how you feel isn't just about you. You know, how you feel affects yeah. other people too. So it's about, you know, it's the whole environment, it's everything. It all matters. And ultimately we all want 
to have optimal health, both physically and mentally. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, Andrew, the parent, increased irritability is not great for when your toddlers are running around no, um, and maybe not. not doing what they're supposed to. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, everyone's different. Like, I'm more like you were. I, I mean, especially you can also see on your continuous glucose monitor your spikes, but I'm very sensitive to my blood sugar. So even like, you know, for me, I know, for example, um, pretzels really must make my blood sugar spike because if my son has a few and I just pick like even just a handful to have with him. Yeah. Within 20 minutes, I'm on the low and not feeling good. But that's because I'm also aware of what foods can spike my blood sugars. I have all this knowledge and then am sensitive to them. But for someone who really may not know what foods they're more sensitive to or less sensitive to because everyone is a little bit different. That's where I do right. think those CGMs or continuous glucose monitors can be really helpful. Like we said, not everyone has access to them. You also don't need... Um, I'm so happy that the company levels is discussing it more, right? Like people are now talking about CGMs because of them, but also know too that like there are other ways you can get one as well. Um, if you're interested in really following your blood sugars and seeing how specific foods affect them, because there's generalizations for everyone in terms of, you know, what foods are more likely to cause a spike versus others. But I'm glad you brought up. It's interesting, too, if you were, you know, maybe to use one of those monitors and you saw that your blood sugars are still elevated from eating most things that may be cause for wanting to go to the doctor um, and see if anything is going on or if you may fall in that pre-diabetic state, which not to scare everyone, you can get out of that state. Um, it doesn't mean that you, you know, are on the track to having type 2 diabetes. It just is, to me, it's more of a red flag um, that we really need to start looking at, like you said, sleep, exercise, nutrition, stress management, um, and coming up with a good plan and working with um, a health professional. Yes, absolutely. And I, I will say, you know, a lot of people, this it, amazingly, it's become super controversial around, you know, continuous glucose monitors because people are, people in the medical community, especially in the traditional conservative medical community, get so concerned about people, um, you know, picking apart little bitty details of one's individual health or biomarkers. And, you know, they say, oh, you know, don't, don't stress or don't become neurotic about a little bitty nuanced thing. But, the, the reality is that it's, it may not be for everyone, but there are tools out there that people should know about if they feel they need to have better understanding of what's going on or an idea of when they're not feeling good, why. You know, people yeah. look for solutions to improve health, and sometimes it isn't readily apparent in, in traditional settings. You know, you have to look outside of the norm to look for that. Like, I live with type 1 diabetes, and I, I do a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. I mean, nothing about that is... um uh, fits in the normal uh, standard approach, but it's something I found that has been remarkable at improving my overall well-being and, and quality of life. And so that's my personal choice. That's something I've chose to do because it has revolutionized my type one diabetes management. It's revolutionized how I'm able to interact and, and manage other aspects of my life, like being a parent and then working a job that is schedules like all over the place. Um, no one day is the same, you know, that's something I, I, I choose to do and I almost have to do it at this point. Otherwise it would just not be a lifestyle I, I, or a quality of life I'd want. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to look for solutions and sometimes 
just because it doesn't fit under a standard approach. It may not be for you. Maybe you need to do something different. And keep in mind, when you look at scientific data or bar graphs and people says, no, that doesn't work, or no, this intervention didn't work, understand that that might be true on average. These studies are often looking at the average outcome in an individual. But as a scientist, I can tell you that bar graph or that data point is a cluster of sometimes 10 to 100 to thousands of participants who may fall well below that average or well above that average. So keep in mind that you might be that person who doesn't fit right in the middle of that bar graph or right in the middle of that data point. And you might be an outlier and you have to understand and appreciate that that might require you to do something different than what other people are doing or to look for alternative answers if what you're doing right now isn't working. That's a great, great point, Andrew, because most people don't don't think about that or right most people are watching the news and just hearing whatever the news is reporting on specific studies you know so i'm curious you know to wrap things up a bit what are some other daily health and wellness non-negotiables that fit into your routine to support your health that you would say you do most days for me personally so this this may not apply to everyone but for me personally I try to set a rhythm that I can stick with that is reliably going to get me the things in the day that are going to help me feel good and ultimately feel good over time. So I try to go to bed pretty early. I have little ones and not everyone's going to be doing this, but I try to go to bed by nine o'clock at night, you know, sometimes 10. Uh, Like when it gets, when my children are down in bed, Mm -hmm. it's game over. Like I got an hour or less and that's that's it. Um, If I extend it too far, I'm just going to suffer. So I try to get good quality sleep. I try not to wake up too early unless I just can't do anything about it. Now, when I wake up, I try to start my day. I, I don't start my day by immediately eating. I find that that is just setting me up for maybe being hungry for the rest of the day or, you know, feeling sluggish. I just, I, I just have a little bit of coffee. I have water. Then a little bit later, I'll have coffee and just kind of start my day with that. And once I, it gets a little further in the day. And I actually either I'm going to go work out or do something else. Then, then I might have some food around that, but I don't, I don't, I don't prioritize like I have to eat six, you know, three meals at this time or four meals at this time. I, I do it around what works for my lifestyle. And I found doing that minimizes the amount of time that I eat just to eat. I eat when I'm yeah. hungry. I eat when I need to eat around exercise. Um, and so that has just been a game changer for regulating body weight, regulating hunger. Uh, so I'm not living under this, uh, burden this rock of constant hunger and thinking about food all day for for me i used I, as a kid i was obese so i actually fit into the obese category uh, and so i know what it feels like to be hungry all day long and to feel ravenous all day long and and basically perseverate over food nonstop. and so lifestyles like that where you get good sleep you set a routine uh and you have consistent windows is really important i will also say that i fit in exercise every single day. Now, the one thing that has changed a lot as a parent is I now do it whenever I can. I don't just do it uh, like, oh, I do it this time every single day. It's optimal for my metabolic health. Like, LOL, that's not a thing anymore. Uh, So I do it when I can. So like, for example, today, I'm watching my boys all day, except for being here and speaking with you here, Kate. So in order to do that, we were going to go to a play area with some other kids. Uh, they're going to have lunch. They had a set routine, right? So the only way I was going to fit this in is if I put them in this, you know, little chariot pusher and go run outside for 30 minutes. So I just did that. I'm not, I don't get the chance to go to the gym and other things. So for me, I just, that's the thing where I can move it around all day and I'm okay with that. 
you know, because that's not my priority in life. My priority in life is being a good father, being a good partner, being a good friend, being a good colleague. And so, you know, exercise for me is a way of just making sure I maintain long-term health. So I fit it wherever I can. But people may shift these around in their own priorities. I also choose personally to have less heavy meals throughout the day because, you know, some people totally disagree with this. A lot of circadian biologists, um, intermittent fasting uh, researchers don't just don't agree with this approach. So a lot of people say you should eat your heavier meals early in the day. So you minimize the amount of food you have sitting around before you go to bed, which there's literature to show that that's true. But I personally find that I don't do well if I have those heavy meals earlier because I just think about food all day. So I choose to just focus myself on the activities, the priorities of the day, eat when I need to, because I'm not usually that hungry when I first wake up or when I have a lot of activity throughout the day. And I save some of a lot of the calories for later on in the day. Now, I try not to eat it too close to bed because it will mess up my sleep a little bit. But uh, having kids, sometimes I'm not choosing that. <laughs> so, you know, I do what I can. But those are the, the key principles for me is I try to get good sleep. I try to exercise every day, um, at least 30 minutes. I, if I have more time, I, I do more. And then I try to eat healthy food, healthy whole foods. So I try to reduce ultra processed foods. Uh, I try to minimize the amount of sweeteners I have in the diet. Um, those things tend to just one, not make me satiated and just make me want to eat more mm-hmm. and, um, then not eat super heavy meals throughout the day because I feel sluggish. I'm not, I'm not to perform as well. And I, I have, you know, saved that meal for later in the day when I'm, if I'm going to feel sluggish, might as well feel sluggish while I'm sleeping. So that's mm-hmm. how I, that's how I choose to do it because it works for me, but everyone's got to find their own uh, lifestyle and, and nicks and knacks that really fit for their life to allow them to live their best life. Yeah, no, I love it. And I think that's the key. It's right. It, everything is personalized, right? Like you personalize it to yourself. Whereas I find a lot of the times people are, you know, whether they're reading a magazine or following someone on Instagram and trying to do what that person is doing rather than really just trying to focus in one, listen to your body. So in terms of like, Like you noticed, having larger meals in the beginning of the day didn't make you feel good or it made you more hungry. Okay, let's try something else. And then just making it work, which, yeah, that's what you learn as a parent. And it's so funny, Andrew, that you were talking about like fitting exercising because that's kind of how my husband and I are. And we were talking about this morning. We normally can get something in in the morning, whether it's like a quick run or even like 15 minutes at, you know, the gym, just something small. And today we couldn't. So we're like, okay, when the kids are down for bed, maybe I'll go for a run and then we'll like high five and you can go for a quick run. And then we're going to come home and then we are always in bed. I mean, yeah, 10 p.m. is the latest, but like 9 p.m. It's usually like, okay, in bed. Because I always look at it as like, I can't control when my kids are going to wake up, but I can control when I go to sleep. And just the fact that I can have a little bit of control in my life right now over my own life, I have to take it. Um, So, you know, but that personalization, I just think is so key. And rather than trying to mold into what someone else is doing, really try and focus in and listen to your body and see what makes you feel good. Um, We love to end every episode, Andrew, with a quick rapid fire Q&A. So I have three questions for you. First thing that comes to mind, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? Exercise. Love it. Coffee or tea? 
coffee. Like Ted Lasso says, uh, tea is like dirt, you know, just dirt water. And how do you take your coffee? I have done black, but that tastes terrible. I either add MCT, sometimes heavy cream. I, I just don't do great with dairy sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, or I uh, like coconut uh, milk in it. So yeah, love it. Okay. My personal favorite question, what is your favorite home cooked meal? Oh man. My favorite food for sure is steak. Okay. So I, I like to grilled steak no matter what, like there's no bad grilled steak in my opinion, unless you cook it too much, then it's terrible. Yeah, um, I agree. I'm a medium rare girl. Yeah. I'll, I'll start. I'll say, I'll say that that is, that's up there. Although I've, I, it constantly changes. I'm a, and that's not a rapid fire question. I'll just say steak. I'm going to go with steak. I love that. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. Where can people, you know, find you, connect with you if they have more questions um, and just learn more? Sure. So uh, I'm active on Twitter. So I found it to be an amazing, a wonderful and a terrible place all at the same time. But I try to bring more of the positive uh, as much as I can. So I am active on there. I try to participate on that. And there's other links on my Twitter to free content that I put out there for people for information and resources, uh, like a website I made for free for people to read uh, information on and and whatnot. So if you go there, you can find most other things uh, from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. And hopefully we will connect again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kate. Appreciate it. This week's actionable step, like Andrew, is to pay attention to how your body feels when you eat larger or smaller meals at certain times and find what works best for you and makes you feel your best. You can put into practice health tips from some of the best in the business, but you have to personalize them to you. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.